So if we can look at the truth of these narcissistic dynamics, all of a sudden you see the game and you don't have to keep playing the role that you were unconsciously playing, which was being subservient, being powerless, being helpless, being anxious and controllable. Game's always gonna be there of narcissistic dynamics, but you don't have to participate in it. That's where the power is. Today, I'm talking nerdy with Georgie Collinson about narcissism and how to recover from a relationship with someone who is highly narcissistic or has narcissistic personality disorder. In this conversation, we're diving into what narcissism actually is, what it isn't given how much that word is thrown around online these days, how to become more adept at identifying narcissistic people in your life or in your past relationships, how NPD is developed, the types of individuals who are particularly vulnerable to relationships with narcissists, and how to recover from those relationships. Georgie Collinson is Australia's leading anxiety therapist, specializing in high-functioning anxiety. She's known for her entirely holistic mind-body-soul approach, drawing on her experience and skills as an anxiety mindset coach, clinical hypnotherapist, naturopath, and nutritionist. She's deeply committed to helping high-achieving, type-A perfectionists stop struggling with anxiety and crippling self-doubt using the Anxiety Reset Method. This conversation would not be possible without my dear friend Martin Mee introducing me to Georgie. So thank you, Martin, for connecting us and inspiring this incredible conversation. Before you dive in, I would love if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more people like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome to Talk Nerdy to Me, Georgie Collinson. I am so excited to have you on here because you are somebody that I was scouting for the podcast for a while, primarily because you're such an expert in the realm of high-functioning anxiety. And separately, I was thinking about how I really wanted to bring someone on this podcast to talk more about what narcissism entails how to identify when we are in relationship or might be surrounded by somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder, as well as how to recover from relationships with people who have this going on. And coincidentally, you are an expert in this field, so I'm so grateful to have you coming on here today to share with me more about something that I have only recently begun to learn more about, which is narcissism. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Alex. And I'm so excited to just, you know, really open some minds to this idea. And there's so much nuance and so much misinformation in this area. And it may surprise so many people to learn about the major link between high functioning anxiety and experiences with narcissism or narcissistic personalities. So excited to dive in. Yeah. So let's begin by demystifying and debunking it a little bit because my experience previously was that I would see the word narcissism or NPD on social media. I would see words like gaslighting. And also, I think on social media, there's a lot of sensitivity right now around triggers and not being triggered. And a lot of the words that we use within the psychological community as it pertains to mental health and unhealthy relationship patterns, they're quite big buzzwords now and really prevalent. And so for me, I had just kind of written off NPD or narcissism as something that is common or even really present in our society. I really thought that people were just 
being hyperbolic or exaggerating. So I had no idea that this even truly existed. And I'm curious if you can speak more to, first of all, what narcissism is and why there's such a buzz going on right now in our modern wellness world around it. Yeah. So look, there is, of course, space to acknowledge the overuse of the term. And when we think about two people in a, let's just use the romantic context here, two people who are engaging in that vulnerable space of love and who's going to hurt who and all of that, we've essentially got two egos against one another, both trying to defend the self and not be hurt. And so we can quite easily throw this buzzword of, oh, well, he's a narcissist or she's a narcissist to essentially remove any wrongdoing and just like shed that sense of I contributed to this in any way. And there can definitely be that piece. So let's just acknowledge that there can be that inappropriate use. However, narcissism is the spectrum and we do have little elements of narcissism in us. If you have an ego, which we all do, there is this urge to protect it. And that protection of the ego or the fear-based actions that we can take with each other as we relate in the world can bring out the narcissistic qualities that we each have. Now, going all the way into narcissistic personality disorder, this is a diagnosis in the DSM that you know requires a checkbox off of certain characteristics. And then there's a whole lot of different varieties of narcissists under that category as well. So it could be we've got grandiose narcissists, we've got covert narcissism. These are probably the main ones to worry about, but there's a whole lot of different varieties too. Covert narcissism, we see the character typically playing this role of victim and the world is against me and using very manipulative techniques and often quite antagonistic or easy to bring in to sort of disrupt that person into an aggressive state. But it will always be, oh, but I just did that because I'm hurting and because I went through all of this hard stuff. And yet this person's actually being quite harmful and abusive to people around them. We have the grandiose narcissists who are typically quite obsessed with material wealth or anything that's boosting up the ego, anything that suggests that you are successful and we all have different ideas of that so for some that could be fame it could be fortune for others it might look like as well and these are the really sneaky ones oh i'm so charitable look at all this amazing charity work i'm doing i'm such a nice person like there can be some narcissism in there too so it's a really interesting fascinating feel in terms of receiving or a person receiving that label of narcissistic personality disorder, the chances are typically going to be quite rare that the narcissists in the world or the true number of people that can qualify for those characteristics are actually documented because people who are typically narcissistic or highly narcissistic, remember there's a spectrum, the highly narcissistic do not self-reflect, do not consider themselves to have a problem and are therefore highly unlikely to go to a therapist's office and say, hey, can you check whether there's a problem with me? They don't believe there's anything wrong with them, if anything. And if they do go to therapy, 
They're usually looking for validation. They're usually quite manipulative and can get the therapist to validate them and tell them, actually, you know what? You're doing a great job because they will play whatever role they need to play in order to get the result that they want and they will play on their therapist. So it's an interesting one in terms of actually identifying how many people are fully in that NPD category. So we move into this territory of thinking, do we actually need a full proof? Do we need a diagnosis? Do we need evidence? Or is it something that we can learn about and detect noticing a dynamic, noticing a game that's at play here with certain people, certain difficult relationships in our lives. And this is not just something you do in a one minute conversation with someone. It obviously can take some time to sense it. But my offering here is that we do not necessarily need to have had concrete, this person's had a diagnosis in much the same way that you may want a diagnosis of ADHD before you go into treatment and that kind of thing. There are certain characteristics that we can look out for, be aware of. We can start to see the game and so that we don't have to keep being the victim or the prey to these personalities. I think that that would be an amazing follow-up question is what are some of the characteristics that we can start to look for and identify? Because you'd mentioned in the context of a narcissistic person hypothetically going to therapy, that they will put on whatever mask they need to in order to get that external validation or whatever it may be from the person that they're in contact with. And I'm curious if you can describe more of what some of those behaviors may be, like what are the narcissists doing to evoke certain emotional reactions from others? Yeah, so I would say it can be easier to put it into a certain context. So again, I'll come back to like more of a what we might experience in love, in dating, in relationships, because I feel like that's most relevant anyway. And what we might see is love bombing, for example. So this adoration, lots of maybe they're sending you flowers and gifts. Maybe they're taking you out to fancy restaurants. Maybe they're telling you that you're the most amazing person they've ever met. They've never felt this way before. You're so special. Now they're saying these things, they're doing these things, And this isn't to say everyone that love bombs is 100% a narcissist, but it is narcissistic behavior because of the manipulation behind it, because there is ultimately a sense within the individual that is love bombing of insecurity and scarcity around love, that love actually is something I have to control, steal and take rather than something I can just allow and expect and expect in a natural way, expect in the sense that I know I'm a lovable person. So because these narcissistic personalities are coming from such a place of scarcity and insecurity in themselves, they have to manipulate love. They have to get it out of another person. They're not doing this consciously. They are doing it unconsciously, but they will do all of the love bombing so that the other person thinks, wow, this person's amazing. They're not necessarily taking you out to that fancy restaurant so that you feel so great about you and so that you are being honored and respected as a partner. They're doing that because they get to be the person that took you to the fancy restaurant. They get to be the person that spoils the people that they date. It makes their ego feel good. And so it's looking out for those little funny moments where you actually don't feel like they're doing it for you. They're doing it more for the validation that they receive. 
And it can be as simple as feeling this strange disconnect. It can be as simple as feeling, and I know this isn't concrete. There isn't much concrete in this world. In fact, like we can educate ourselves and be aware on that mental level. But after a while, we have to sink into our body, into how we're feeling and our nervous system. Here's where the anxiety comes in. You may notice that there is a sense of unsafety in the body around these kinds of personalities. I know in my experience, and I wasn't always aware of it, I started to notice over time that certain men would approach me or I'd be on a date with them and I would feel this like sense of anxiety in my body, like I am prey and there is a predator. And it took a while for my mind to catch up to the logic behind this and realize that my body is so smart. It's so wise and it is picking up on something that doesn't feel balanced and safe in this connection. The other key that's so interesting that you can look out for is a sense of confusion because the person in front of you is presenting a version of reality that just doesn't quite match up to yours. They're living in their own fantasy world. And for a while, you might notice yourself just being a kind, empathetic, easygoing kind of person. And they will pick people like like us, Alex, who are generally quite open-minded, loving, big-hearted, easy to get along with so that they can pull you into that fantasy world and you'll probably kind of go along with it for a while. But you'll always notice this part of you that's kind of like, oh, that's strange. Like, I thought they said that they, I don't know, had a, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but let's say they imply they have a lot of money and then you notice something odd, like they drive a car that's a bomb or something like that. It's like, something about this just isn't adding up. Or just to bring in a short, a momentary experience with someone I was once on a date and the person in front of me was saying, I just can't be around anxious people ever. I just like cut them out of my life. Now he knew the work that I do, which is that I help people with anxiety. And there was something so off about that as a version of reality to live in where you just cut out all the people that are ever going to experience any anxiety. I mean, you're not going to have many human beings left. You're living in a delusion. You're living in a fantasy world if you just cut out any person that feels anxiety. And Clearly, there's a huge rejection going on in this person of any parts of themselves that feel very afraid and fearful. So that was one of those moments for me of this doesn't quite add up. That's strange. Like I would never try to cut out every anxious person in my life. And in fact, I couldn't and I and I wouldn't. And that's not even the way that I understand anxiety. Anxiety is something that's there to guide us and our nervous system. It's designed to keep us safe. And keep us in situations like this, where we are literally potentially in a dangerous connection or a connection that our body senses as dangerous, threatening, predator, prey, it will tell us that. So those are some things to kind of look out for. I've mentioned the love bombing. I've mentioned the two different sort of realities. So there's your reality, your truth, and then there's their reality. And you'll notice this weird sense of like the two not matching up. The other key one would be you'll notice that there can be a sense of needing to cut you down as well as at the same time build you up. So there's the love bomb and then the slap in the face straight after it, but then maybe some more love bombing, 
so that you forget that they said that really negative comment to you or they did something to pull you down a few pegs. Sometimes this is called negging in the dating world. It's just bringing someone down so that the narcissistic personality maintains a sense of I've got power over you. And I would say if I have to sum up the whole thing, that really is what the underlying theme and the dynamic. And a lot of us are kind of like, this is all we've known in so many relationships in our lives that the dynamic is I'm right. I'm more powerful than you. I know more than you. You know less than me. You should just agree with what I say. So there's this real power over dynamic that a narcissistic personality has to maintain over another. And there will always be this slight chipping away of your self-esteem, your self-worth, your sense of even trust in yourself. And of course, we develop and we can get into chronic anxiety from that place. So I see this dynamic playing out in so many situations with my clients that is underlying the anxiety. It's kind of like someone made you believe that you're not powerful, that you can't trust yourself. And this happens so often. And and usually it does go back to some kind of dynamic in childhood, one parent or the other, or sometimes both parents. Sometimes it was a school teacher. Sometimes it was a bully more in the high school years or something sort of unfolded later in life. But there usually are those origins of that dynamic earlier in life. And sometimes it can come as a big surprise. It came as a big surprise to me too. I didn't think I had any dynamics like that from my childhood, but certainly after more explanation and real exploration and really getting honest with myself and really being like committed to finding that power and truth in myself, I started to see it. Absolutely. Something that I want to go back to that you mentioned is that one of the things that narcissists are working to protect is a very fragile ego and an inability to be with anxiety, for example. But also a lot of the research points to narcissists are incapable of being with any sort of negative emotion because any sort of negative emotion is something that undercuts they're already fragile self-esteem. So what I want to make sure listeners are really aware of is that narcissists don't actually have these grandiose ideas of themselves. It's a mask. It's a delusion that they've put on in order to protect a deep sense of insecurity, which is what you mentioned before. And I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more to where that fundamental insecurity would come from in a person who's highly narcissistic. Yeah, I love that you highlighted the way that negative emotion is not tolerated because literally this person, this human being has been so wounded and has such a a wounded heart that they've had to build like a fortress around it. And for them to actually tap in and feel what is there like the truth of who they are there's so much pain there and shame typically as well it's almost like in those vampire shows that a lot of us grew up watching where you know vampire diaries where they turn off their humanity and then the vampires can turn back their humanity when they turn back on their humanity they often experience this big breakdown and they're so sad and they like feel terrible about all the people they've killed they turn off the humanity And they can just go into that state of, I don't care. I can just be powerful and do whatever I want. It's not 
you know, a bad metaphor, the vampire metaphor, to look at these and understand these narcissistic personalities. In fact, it's a really good one if you want to really understand and understanding too why those stories are so exciting to society because of the way that these themes can run through and we can relate to it. So there's typically just so much wounding. So there will be often the narcissistic pattern will run through families and generations. So let's say a child is raised by narcissistic parents. Sometimes that child ends up being highly empathetic, empathic even, very sensitive, very sweet and quite anxious. These are usually my clients that come find a me. Or they might go the other way and often my clients will tell me they've got a sibling, a brother, a sister who is a very difficult personality who never gives them that approval. They always feel like they've never quite done enough for this person. That sibling's always complaining, always in that state of disapproval, like it's never enough. So that pattern will run through families. Usually then you can see if a child is raised by a narcissistic parent who's also been telling them, you're not good enough for me, you're never going to get my approval. And yet that child is desperately seeking the approval of their parents like we are all driven to do. In fact, we will be more driven to seek the approval of a parent who is highly critical. A highly critical parent is is usually going to be higher on that narcissistic spectrum. So because it's not as easy to get that approval, we're going to focus on that. If we have one loving, soft, gentle parent, but one really like harsh one, we don't care so much about the approval that comes easily. We care about the approval that's so hard to get and fight for it. And so this can lead to the destruction of a child's self-esteem, which then leads to that narcissistic tendency then developing in that child as well because, well, I'm never going to be good enough for my dad, so then I have to build this big fortress and facade around me and try and make myself look bigger and make myself look better. Often we'll see things like just masses of trauma too and you don't need to look far into someone's heritage, someone's genetic lineage. Sometimes we can understand big events like wars and sometimes there have been historical sexual abuse and those kind of things that can lead to the development of these patterns too. It's kind of like we know sexual predators typically have been abused themselves And that's sort of a similar dynamic that we can see with narcissistic patterns too. We tend to believe that that's love and that's how love is available to us. It is something, as I was saying, that needs to be taken. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be manipulated. And think about it, without love, especially as children, we're not safe. We don't feel a sense of security that we are going to have our needs met. We are driven to feel that we belong and are accepted in our family. And if we're not getting that, we're going to adapt in some way to ensure we get that need met. For some people, we'll become massive people pleasers. We'll just do whatever someone says and we'll bend over backwards. We'll be very, very nice people and very attuned to the needs of others and put everyone else first. Again, these are typically my clients. These are not weak people. These are high achievers. These are amazing, impressive, perfectionistic type people. But then on the other spectrum, we have trying to get those needs met, adapting through building this big facade of look how great I am and I've got to be more powerful than you. There's a lack of empathy, which is the hallmark of these narcissistic patterns, one that I haven't mentioned so far. And that lack of empathy 
I think it's really important to highlight the nuance here. It doesn't mean that they can never show empathy, that they never do a nice thing or look like they're being nice. Remember, I mentioned the very altruistic narcissism that can come out. Look at me. I'm so great. I donated all this money to charity. I'm I'm helping out and building orphanages in Africa. Great. But also like, look how they need to show the world and tell the world about it. That's a piece to look out for. So they might seem really nice and lovely, but they're ultimately doing it for power, for control, for influence. Everyone thinks I'm really nice. Everyone thinks I'm a lovely person. And now I know that's going to actually make me more likable. You can think of a politician this way. Well, you're going to get higher opinion polls and that kind of thing, right? And you're going to get more power. So we have to be smart about this. It's not always like the big obvious villain Highly narcissistic personalities are everywhere. They are in our systems. They are often our leaders because of the nature of power and how we gain power over others. It just happens to be the way our system is set up. We look at corporations that are, you know, ruling so much of the world and the decisions that happen. Narcissism really is at the crux of everything. And it, and it is that hallmark of lack of empathy, not actually seeing that as human beings, we are ultimately all equal and we have to see ourselves as that way. But that's a scary thing to see sometimes because we don't feel as safe when we are all equal. We like to have this sense of I've got, I've got all my resources sorted and it's every man for himself. Absolutely. When I was doing some research preparing for this episode, one of the things that I kept encountering was that the part of the brain that's responsible for interoception, our brain's ability and our ability to consciously feel into what sensations we're experiencing in our body, it's called the insula. And that is something that essentially gets really weak in narcissists through a lack of use because the emotion that they've experienced through such trauma or abandonment or intergenerational narcissism has evoked such a strong emotional reaction that they eventually can't handle it. They just have to shut it down. The insula is also what enables us to experience empathy for another person. And it makes a lot of sense. And it makes me so sad, which I feel weird even saying. I feel so bad that there's so much trauma that can lead someone to shut down their own emotional response so severely that they can no longer feel empathy for others. And so you mentioned before that it's highly unlikely that a narcissist would actually seek out treatment or support in overcoming their own narcissism. I'm curious if you know of or have heard of anybody actually recovering from it. It does happen, but because I'm typically working with the people who are on the other side of that piece, and hey, there are therapists and amazing healers that specifically want to help these people. And gosh, like credit to them and the massive compassion that they've tapped into. I feel the compassion too. I see the wounded little boy, the wounded little girl behind all of this. However, there is that idea that, you know, the trauma you've been through, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And it doesn't excuse harmful, hurtful behavior we have to acknowledge the reality. These are victims of narcissistic abuse. This is emotional abuse. It's subtle. It's gaslighting. It's getting people to question their truth. 
getting people to completely shut down their needs in favor of somebody else and feeling so powerless. I mean, these are the people that I want to advocate for. And in order to help those people move forward, we have to be very careful about the idea of the hope that the narcissistic person is going to change because the vast, vast majority of the time they will not. They can, but they are very unlikely to because of just what we talked about. They will have a psychological breakdown should they tap into the shame that's underneath that massive fortress of a personality, a character that they've created. And, you know, we may see things like addiction come out, addictive personalities, you know, just to use a a famous sort of example. and, And actually someone who, I mean, there's some tricky things in the news about him lately, but Russell Brand, right? He's been very overt about his past with addiction. He's written amazing books about it. And he's been very open about his own narcissism and the way that he's worked with that. He's very much into, you know, growing and developing. There are some big claims at the moment about his past that, you know, we'll just have to sort of leave as is. But that is one example. I would say the claims that were made about the wrongdoings that he's done from 10 plus years ago, who the character I see of him now, I think he's an example of one of the rare narcissistic personalities that has taken a good hard look at himself and grown beyond that the question of whether that excuses his behavior from the past is open to interpretation but there is quite a prominent figure who has I would say exhibited that evolution now I don't know him personally I only know the character that he puts forward and lets us see but I do When I feel into the work that he puts out, I feel that he has truly done a lot of self-reflection and and I do have that respect for him in that way. So that's just one example. However, we cannot rely on that, especially when we think of people in, in marriages and relationships, you know, ultimately longing for this person to change we have to lean into this idea that they're they're never going to change and you cannot help them ultimately. They don't want to be helped because they don't see a problem in themselves. They're not reflecting on themselves most of the time. That makes a lot of sense. And that was actually another huge piece of research that I found when getting ready for this episode was that people with highly narcissistic characteristics are 40% more likely to have other addictions than the rest of the population. And there was a specific piece of research that compared the brains of individuals that rated highly as narcissistic with the brains of individuals who are addicted to cocaine. And what they found was that there's a huge amount of similarity between the two. And specifically that the way in which narcissist experience stress. So the stress of having that shame exposed or tapping into what's really beneath the mask that they put on, it almost functions as the way that an addict pursues their next dopamine hit. Basically what this study entailed or what it came to in the conclusion is that narcissists are addicted to upholding this mask or this delusion or this fantasy that they've held on to. And a lot of the traits that we see in narcissists, you know, lying, being self-centered, being secretive, hiding, are also traits that people who are in active patterns of addiction are also participating in because the addiction becomes stronger 
than the part of their brain that's compelling them to not lie, to tell the truth, to seek out connection with other people, and so on and so on. So that makes a lot of sense. And something that you mentioned is that narcissists will kind of prey on or have a specific affinity for more relaxed people that are kind of going with the flow. But if we were to use this kind of addict example where there are a lot of similarities, addicts and codependents or highly anxious people have a particular affinity for each other. And I'm curious if you can speak more to the relationships between narcissists and highly anxious individuals and why there might be such an affinity between the two there. Here's the thing. We often think of these highly anxious individuals as, you know, like a meek little mouse of a person. But as I was saying to you, these are typically highly high achievers, highly perfectionistic, like amazing people. They've got something shiny and sparkly about them that makes the narcissist look good. But they're also lovely people that are very understanding, very warm. Someone could say to them, you know, I've had a really difficult past and I'm like, I've got all these issues. And that personality that is highly anxious might lean in and say, oh, I'm going to try and save you. I want to help you. I don't mind that you've got all these flaws. That's okay. I can help you. So they're often looking for someone who is malleable in that way, someone who doesn't have strong boundaries, someone who is highly empathetic. But also, and I think this is the piece that often gets missed. It's not to say it's not not always the case, but I see it time and time again in the women that I work with, high achievers. You know, they love that. They love someone that is dedicated to taking care of themselves. It doesn't always mean career. Sometimes it's in the way they take care of their physical body. It might be financial. It might be different elements. Maybe this person is highly charismatic and has a bubbling social life and they've got a lot more social skills than even the narcissist has, even though they tend to be quite charming when they put it on. So these are some of the characteristics they'll look for. They look for something that complements ultimately their desired goal, which is to feel powerful and to feel like they're important too. I mean, we see this in celebrity culture all the time. It's, it's our society is highly narcissistic. We're looking for like the you know, the trophy wife, the trophy husband. It's that idea that they make me look good, but they'll also be, and there needs to be for the narcissist, this sense of, I've got you, I can control you. You're wrapped around my little finger. It's so interesting that you say that because there was a study that was done where narcissists were rated by other people as being, without having any idea of like personality, whatever, being rated as more, attractive and more intelligent than others. And we'll perceive that higher intelligence because the narcissist is always right. So even if the narcissist is wrong, they will manipulate the argument. They will use, you know, florid language. They will do things to appear like they know everything. Yeah, this is like just a classic element. And so do you see the influence? There is a magnetism. There is a power to a narcissistic personality that is highly charming. I would say in our celebrity world, there's just like spot the narcissist there probably. There's a lot of them to be in that environment. It's a very superficial, materialistic environment. It's made for a fragile ego because look how great you are and look how many people love you if you are famous. Why do so many young people now wish to be famous 
it's ultimately, I mean, we could say it's a narcissism problem, which is, you know, very much our culture, our society, that we are leaning into that narcissistic way of being. It's l- much less about the heart in a person. It's much less about the quality of the human being and how much they care about others and how much they treat each other with respect. It's all about being better than. But we also need to look at, we've got a real problem with deep connection and feeling seen children not feeling really seen and having had that presence with their parents like that I'm here for you I've got time for you how many of us even our generation Alex have grown up with parents who were just so busy working so much and maybe maybe not able to just spend that time and we are hungry for it and then we become adults that are so busy and don't have that time and that is part of how this develops to this emptiness inside that is yearning to connect, be seen, be validated, and really find that true unconditional sort of love that it's not as common as it should be. And just because it's not common doesn't mean that's, you know, not possible. Just because it's common for everyone to be busy and on the go and for a lot of emotional needs to be repressed and stuck and denied, that doesn't mean it's healthy. And so ultimately part of this narcissistic culture that we live in too is about, like you said, emotional repression. It's not okay to have negative emotions. We've got to be happy in sunshine all the time when in fact we are just perpetuating our anxiety, our trauma by not finding resolution for these big feelings and these big experiences that we all go through. So in terms of recovering and recovering from relationships with narcissistic individuals, where do we even begin on that process? Something you mentioned before was a detachment from the idea or the fantasy, we could say, that they'll change, heal, recover, which I think would require some really strong boundaries in place and some degree of separation. I'm curious how we move forward from there. It's such a good question. And there is not a simple answer to this journey. It is not easy work and it is not something that, you know, for the faint hearted in that sense either. The starting point is getting really honest with yourself and it takes seeing situations in your life, people that you love, seeing them for the truth of who they are, seeing that relationships that you thought were loving and people you thought genuinely care about your needs starting to see actually maybe this is a whole lot more shallow than I thought. Maybe the depth was actually my delusion and something I kept telling myself. I kept telling myself, oh, he loves me. Oh, he's just busy because he's got work and and he's not messaging me because of this. Or, but, But he loves me. We're telling ourselves the fantasy, the story that they care more deeply than the truth is that they have the capacity to. So there is a real painful truth and it will come when you're ready. And maybe it's this episode and maybe this is really opening some eyes here. But I will say, if you are willing to face that and it is a painful truth to see and it's a real honesty with oneself. And as I said, it took me years and I was doing all this inner work and I didn't I didn't realize so many of these dynamics I just didn't want to see because it really, it broke my heart to see a lot of it. But 
if we can go there, the whole point of this, and I think it's important to keep it in mind, is that on the other side of that, you are taking back your power, claiming back what you always deserved, which is that, no, these other people do not have power of you. That's an illusion. That's not the truth. They've given you that perception, but it's time for you to shift your perception and see you are equal, that you are deserving to take up space, that you have needs and your needs matter, that you matter, that you're important, that your voice matters and starting to shift into that space where all of a sudden, oh my gosh, we have confidence after believing that, you know, our confidence can just be taken by another person or the wind can just be taken out of our sails within moments of being in certain presences. We'll often notice this with intimidating figures. Maybe it's in a work meeting. This is really classic with the people I work with too, or it might be a family member who can just come in and just say something. And all of a sudden you're quiet and you're shut down and you're in a freeze response. So if we can look at the truth of these narcissistic dynamics, all of a sudden you see the game that's at play here. And you don't have to keep playing the role that you were unconsciously playing, which was being subservient, being powerless, being helpless, being anxious and controllable. You actually get to step into who you really are, your authentic self. You get to find that sense of who you are. And that's a really beautiful place to be. And then you can see the game. The game's always going to be there of narcissistic dynamics, but you don't have to participate in it. And you've got your eyes open to it. So that's where the power is. And I will say, unfortunately, we cannot call out a narcissist. You might want to when you realize all of this information. You might want to say, well, you're a narcissist. And look at all these things that you tick off. And you could send them a whole like psychological analysis, right? And you could be very right. But they are never going to be wrong. So that's the thing. A narcissist is never really wrong. Even if they say sorry, you got to be really careful with those apologies that come through because sometimes they're just saying that sorry so that it's like, see, I've said sorry. Now you're going to come back and trust me again and believe me again because I can't be a narcissist if I say sorry. So we got to be careful of that too, the ulterior motive. But it's a real claiming back of your power, yeah. I have a follow-up question for you on that because this is where I got really tripped up down this entire rabbit hole of researching narcissism and working to understand it. I am a firm believer of personal responsibility. And so I think that's something that I want to leave listeners with as well is, you know, what you mentioned before around our trauma is sometimes not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And taking too much responsibility for a situation or somebody else's behaviors that are completely out of your control can be an obstacle to actually healing and moving forward and not being able to see that there are some people out there who are not acting in integrity, who are not keeping your needs and safety in consideration, you know, so I think that's worth noting. Oh, so worth noting. And I'm really glad you brought that up too, because I would say the only responsibility in there is looking at the part of you that's so, so willing to take that responsibility and say, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? Because typically we've got some reinforced element of you've done something wrong, you're to blame, you're being too needy, you're being too much, rather than actually sort of starting to see, oh, 
but wait, I'm just, I'm just a human. Like I am allowed to have needs. I'm just being myself, right? There is this balance in that for sure. I mean, it's amazing to be self-reflective and we, we don't want to go too far down that spectrum because of course, then we're going into that narcissist realm, but that is the delicate dance with all of this for sure, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this conversation has been so personally helpful for me, and I know that it's going to be so illuminating for so many listeners as well. So if somebody wanted to learn more from you, you are also in podcast land and you have a book that's out there. Do you want to share a little bit more about where people can find you and learn more? Yeah, for sure. I have a podcast called the Anxiety Reset Podcast. I have quite a few episodes on this whole topic of narcissism and narcissists. And I have a book, The Anxiety Reset Method, that's coming out in the US on the 7th of November, which is super exciting. So that's going to be out and available for everyone very soon. Amazing. And in terms of social media, can everybody follow you on Instagram? Is there anywhere else they should be reaching out to you if they wanted to get in touch about working together? Of course, you can hang out with me over on Instagram at Georgie the Naturopath. That's where I'm most active is my Instagram. And I usually get back to people pretty quick over there. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking nerdy to me, Georgie. I so appreciate your wisdom and your expertise today. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a joy. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.